0: Section 4 of The Begum's Fortune by Jules Verne, translated by W. H. G. Kingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Two Claimants. On the 6th of November at 7 a.m., Professor Schultz arrived at the Charing Cross Station. At noon, he presented himself at number 94, Southampton Row, entering a large room. Divided by a wooden barrier, one side being for the clerks, the other for the public. In it there were six chairs, a table, numberless green tin boxes, and a London directory. Two young men, seated at the table, were quietly eating the traditional lunch of bread and cheese usual with their class. Messrs. Billows Green and Shop, said the professor in the tone of a man calling for his dinner. Mr. Sharp is in his private room, what name, on what business? Professor Schultz of Gina, on the Langeville business. This information was murmured into the speaking tube by the young clerk, a reply being returned into his ear, which he did not choose to repeat. Hang the lang of old business, another fool come to put in a claim. Clerks answer, this man seems respectable enough, does not look exactly agreeable, though. Another mysterious whisper conveyed the words, and he comes from Germany. So he says. With a sigh came the order. Send him upstairs. Second story door facing you, said the clerk aloud, pointing to an inner entrance. The professor plunged into the passage, mounted the stairs, and found himself opposite a green baize door on which the name of Mr. Sharp stood out in black letters on a brass plate. That personage was seated at a large mahogany writing table in a common looking room with a felt carpet, leather chairs, and many open boxes. He half rose from his seat, and then, according to the polite fashion of businessmen, began to rummage amongst his papers for several minutes, to show how busy he was. At last, turning to Professor Schultz, who remained standing near him, he said, "'Have the goodness, sir, to tell me your business here in as few words as possible,' my time is limited. I can give you but a very few minutes. The professor smiled slightly, evidently not at all put out by the way he was received. Perhaps, he said, when you know what brings me here, you will think it advisable to grant me a few minutes more. Proceed, sir. My business relates to the inheritance left by Jean-Jacques Langeville of Bardeluc, I am the grandson of the elder sister, Theresa Langeville, who married in 1792 my grandfather, Martin Schultz, a surgeon in the Army of Brunswick. He died in 1814. I have in my possession three letters from my great-uncle, written to his sister, and many accounts of his return home after the Battle of Gina. Besides the legal documents which prove my birth, we need not follow Professor Schultz through the prolix explanations which he gave to Mr. Sharp. On this point he seemed, contrary to his nature, quite inexhaustible. His aim was to demonstrate to this Englishman, this Mr. Sharp, that by rights the German race should in all things predominate over all others. His object in putting forward a claim to this inheritance was chiefly that it might be snatched from French hands, which could not fail to make a silly use of it. What he hated in his rival was his nationality. Had he been a German, he certainly would not have interfered, etc., etc., but that a Frenchman, a would-be savant, should have this enormous wealth to spend upon French fancies was distracting to his feelings, and he considered it his duty to contest his right to it at all costs. At first sight, the connection between these political opinions and the opulent inheritance in question was not very clear, but the experienced eye of the man of business plainly detected the relation which patriotic ambition for the advantage of the German nation generally bore to the private interests of Professor Schultz individually. He saw that this apparently double aim had, in reality, but one motive. There is no doubt about it, however humiliating it might be for a professor of the University of Gina, To be connected with beings of an inferior race, it was evident that a French ancestress had had a share in the responsibility of giving to the world this matchless human being, but this relationship being in a secondary degree to that of Dr. Saracen would only give secondary rights to the said inheritance. The solicitor perceived, however, the possibility of lawfully sustaining them and in this possibility he foresaw another which would be much to the advantage of billows green and sharp, something which would change the Langeville affair, already productive, into a very good thing indeed, a second case of the jaundice versus jaundice of Dickens, an extensive horizon of stamped papers, deeds, documents of all sorts, rose before the eyes of the man of law, and what was worth more, he saw a compromise conducted by himself sharp to the interest of both his clients, which would bring to himself equal parts of honor and profit. In the meanwhile he made known to Professor Schultz the claims of Dr. Saracen, gave him proofs in corroboration, and insinuated that if Billows Green and Sharp undertook to make something advantageous for the professor out of the claims, shadowy though they are, my dear sir, it would, I fear, not hold water in a lawsuit, which his relationship to the doctor gave him. He hoped that the remarkable sense of justice, possessed by all Germans, would admit that to Messrs. Billows Green and Sharp He, the professor, owed a large debt of gratitude. The latter was practical enough to understand the drift of this argument, and soon put the mind of the businessman at rest on this point, though without committing himself in any way, Mr. Sharp politely begged permission to examine into the affair at his leisure, showed him out with marked respect, nothing more having been said as to the very limited time of which before he had been so sparing. Professor Schultz retired, convinced that he had no sufficient claim to put forward for the begum's inheritance, but all the same persuaded that a struggle between the Saxon and Latin races, besides being always meritorious, would not fail, if set about properly, to turn to the advantage of the former. The next important step was to get Dr. Saracen's opinion on the subject. A telegraph dispatched immediately to Brighton had the effect of bringing that gentleman to Mr. Sharp's office by five o'clock. Dr. Saracen heard all that had occurred with a calmness which astonished the solicitor. He frankly declared that he perfectly remembered a tradition in his family of a great-aunt brought up by a rich entitled lady who had emigrated with her and who had married in Germany. He knew neither the name nor the exact degree of relationship of this great-aunt. Mr. Sharp was busily looking over his notes, carefully numbered in portfolios, which he now exhibited with considerable complacency to the doctor. There was. Mr. Sharp did not seek to hide it matter for a lawsuit, and lawsuits of this character may easily be lengthened out. Indeed, it was not at all necessary to acknowledge to the adverse party that family tradition which Dr. Saracen had in his honesty just now confided to his solicitor. To be sure, there were those letters from Jean-Jacques Langville to his sister, of which Professor Schultz had spoken, and which were a point in his favor. A very small point, indeed, destitute of any legal character, but still a point. No doubt other proofs would be exhumed from the dust of municipal archives. Perhaps even the adverse party, in default of authentic documents, would even dare to manufacture false ones. Everything must be foreseen. Who knew but that fresh investigations might assign to this Teresa Langeville and her descendants, who had suddenly started showing up, superior claims to Dr. Saracens. In any case, there would be long disputes, tedious examinations, no end of them. There was good hope of success for both sides. Each could easily form a limited liability company to advance the cost of the proceedings— and exhaust all the pleas of jurisdiction. A celebrated suit of the same sort had been in the court of Chancery for eighty-three consecutive years, and was only ended at last for want of funds. Interest in capital, all had gone. What with inquiries, commissions, transfers, the proceedings would take an indefinite period— In ten years' time, the question would probably still be undecided, and the twenty-one millions still sleeping quietly in the bank. Dr. Saracen listened to this long-winded oration, and wondered when it would come to an end. Without taking for gospel all that he heard, he felt a kind of chilly discouragement creeping over him as a voyager gazes from the ship's bows at the port, to which he believes himself approaching, but sees it growing less and less distinct, and finally disappearing as his vessel drifts away from the land. He told himself that it was not impossible that this fortune just now so near, and for which he had already found a use, would end by slipping from his grasp and fade away. Then what is to be done? he asked of the solicitor. What is to be done? That was difficult to say, more difficult still to decide, but no doubt everything would be arranged in the end. He, sharp, was certain of that. English law was excellent, a little slow, perhaps, but he could not help saying so. Yes, decidedly slow, pediclado, but all the more sure assuredly Dr. Saracen could not fail in the course of a few years to be in possession of this inheritance, always supposing his claims sufficient. The doctor issued from the office in Southampton Row, very much shaken in his confidence, and convinced that he must either plunge into an interminable lawsuit or give up his dream. The thought that his fine philanthropic scheme must come to nothing gave him keen pain. In the meantime, Mr. Sharp sent for Professor Schultz, who had left his address. He told him that Dr. Saracen had never heard of Teresa Langeval, denied the existence of a German branch of the family, and rejected any idea of a compromise. There was nothing that the professor could do, therefore— if he believed his right well established, but to go to law. From this Mr. Sharp, who was perfectly disinterested, of course, and was a mere spectator in the matter, had no intention of dissuading him, what more could a solicitor wish than a lawsuit of perhaps thirty years, and not knowing to what it might lead them, he personally would be delighted.' If he had not feared that Professor Schultz would think it suspicious on his part, he would have pushed his disinterestedness so far as to recommend to him one of his legal brethren, who would look after his interests. And indeed, the choice was an important one. The path of law had now become a regular high road. Swarming with adventurers and robbers, he owned this shameful fact, though with a blush... "'Supposing the French doctor was willing to arrange the matter, "'how much would it cost?' asked the professor. "'Being a wise man, words could not confuse him. "'Being a practical man, he went straight to the point "'without wasting any precious time on the way. "'Mr. Sharp was rather disconcerted by this mode of action. "'He represented to Professor Schultz "'that business did not go on so quickly as all that, "'that no one could see the end.' when as yet they were just at the beginning, that in order to bring Dr. Saracen to terms, they must protract the business, so as not to allow him to see that he, Schultz, was at all eager to compromise matters. I beg, sir, he concluded, that you will leave it to me, put yourself in my hands, and I will be answerable for everything. Very well, replied Schultz. "'but I should much like to know what I have to expect.' However, he could not ascertain from Mr. Sharp the price at which the solicitor valued Saxon gratitude, and was therefore obliged to give him carte blanche in the matter. When Dr. Saracen appeared next day in answer to Mr. Sharp's summons, and quietly asked if he had any particular news for him, the solicitor alarmed at his calmness, Informed him that a serious examination had convinced him that the better plan would be to nip the threatened danger in the bud and propose to compromise with this new claimant. Dr. Saracen must agree with him that this was essentially disinterested advice, and what few solicitors in Mr. Sharp's place would have given, but he felt quite a paternal interest in the affair, and his pride was concerned in bringing it to a speedy conclusion. The doctor listened and thought all this sensible enough. During the last few days he had become so accustomed to the idea of immediately realizing his scientific dream that everything gave way to it. To wait ten years or even one year before he had it in his power would have been a cruel trial to him without being taken in by Mr. Sharp's fine speeches. Although little familiar with legal and financial questions, he would have cheerfully given up his claims for a sum paid down in ready money sufficient to enable him to pass at once from theory to practice. He also, therefore, at once, gave carte blanche to Mr. Sharp and departed. The solicitor had now got what he wanted. It was quite true that perhaps another might in his place have yielded, to the temptation of beginning and prolonging a lawsuit, which would bring in a considerable annuity to his business. But Mr. Sharp was not a man who cared for this kind of speculation. He saw close to his hand a way by which he could reap an abundant harvest, and he resolved to seize it. The next day he wrote to the doctor that he believed Herr Schultz was not opposed to a compromise. In subsequent visits made by him to the doctor and professor, he told them alternately that the adverse party would say nothing decided, and that, in addition, a third candidate, attracted by the scent, was talked of. This little game went on for a week. In the morning all was going well, but by the evening an unforeseen objection had suddenly arisen to upset everything. The honest doctor was incessantly troubled by doubts, fears, and changes of mind. Mr. Sharp could not bring himself to hook his fish. He so greatly feared that at last he would struggle and snap the line. But so many precautions were, in this case, quite superfluous. From the very first day, Dr. Saracen, who would have done anything to spare himself the trouble of a lawsuit— was ready for any arrangement, when at last Mr. Sharp thought that the psychological moment, to use the celebrated expression, had arrived, or in less exalted language, that his client was done to a turn, he suddenly unmasked his batteries and proposed an immediate compromise. A benevolent man then appeared, the banker still being who proposed to split the difference, to give to each ten millions, and to merely have for commission the surplus million. Dr. Saracen could have embraced Mr. Sharp when he made him this proposal. It seemed splendid to him. He was ready and eager to sign. He would have liked to put up in the marketplace of the proposed city golden statues to the banker Stilbing, to the solicitor Sharp, to the bank, and to all the lawyers in the United Kingdom. The documents were drawn up, and everything was ready. Professor Schultz had surrendered, Mr. Sharp assuring him that, with a less easy-tempered adversary, he would certainly have had all costs to pay. So it was settled. The two heirs each received a check for a £100,000, payable at sight, and a promise of of a definite settlement, after all the legal formalities had been gone through. Thus was this wonderful affair settled, to the great glory of the Anglo-Saxon race. We are assured that, that same evening, whilst dining at the Cobden Club with his friend Stilbing, Mr. Sharp drank a glass of champagne, to the health of Dr. Saracen, another to Professor Schultz, and then as he finished the bottle, gave way to this somewhat indiscreet exclamation, "'Hurrah! Rule Britannia! We've got the best of it this time!' The truth is that the banker, Stilbing, considered his friend rather stupid for not having made a great deal more out of the business, and in his heart the professor had thought the same— From the moment in which he had felt himself obliged to agree to any arrangement that was offered, what could not have been done with a man like Dr. Saracen, a Celt, careless, thoughtless, and very certainly visionary? The Professor had heard of his rival's project of founding a French town under such moral and physical conditions as would develop the qualities of the race and form strong and brave generations. This enterprise appeared to him absurd, and to his ideas sure to fail, as it opposed the law of progress, which decreed the uprooting of the Latin race, its subjection to the Saxon, and eventually its disappearance from the surface of the globe. However, these results might be held in check if the doctor's program began to be realized, and so much the more if there was any prospect of its success. It was, therefore, the duty of every true Saxon, in the interest of general order, to obey this appointed law and bring to nothing, if he could, this insane enterprise. Under the circumstances, it was quite clear that he, Schultz, M.D., Private docent of chemistry in Gina University, known by his numerous works on the different human races, works in which it was proved that the German race was to absorb all others, it was quite clear that he was particularly designed, by the great creative and destructive force of nature, to annihilate the Pygmies who were struggling against it." From the very beginning it had been ordained that Teresa Langeville would marry Martin Schultz, and that one day the two nationalities meeting in the persons of the French doctor and the German professor, the latter would crush the former. Although he had in his possession half the doctor's fortune, this was the weapon he was to wield. This project was but a secondary one to Professor Schultz at present he merely added it to others still more vast which he had formed for the destruction of all nations who refused to blend themselves with the German people and be united with the fatherland. However, wishing to explore to the end, if so that they had an end, of Dr. Saracen's plans, he attended all the meetings of the Congress. As several members, with Dr. Saracen himself among them, were leaving the meeting, the professor was overheard to make this declaration, that he would found, at the same time as Frankville, a city strong enough to put an end to that absurd and abnormal Ant Hill. "'I hope,' he added, "'that the experiment we shall make will serve as an example to all the world.' Although good Dr. Saracen was so full of love to all mankind, he had lived long enough to know that all his fellow-creatures did not deserve the name of philanthropists. He noted, however, this speech of his adversary, thinking, like a sensible man, that no threat ought to be neglected. Sometime afterwards, writing to Max to invite him to aid in his enterprise, he mentioned this incident— and described Herr Schultz so accurately that the young Alsatian was certain the doctor had in him a formidable adversary. The doctor added, "'We shall need bold and energetic men of practical information, not only to build, but to defend us.' Max answered, "'Oh, though I cannot immediately give my cooperation to the founding of your city,' You may depend on finding me when the right time comes. I shall not lose sight for a single day of this Professor Schultz, whom you have described so well. My obsession birth gives me the right to know about his affairs. Whether I am near you or far away, I am devoted to you. If, by any unforeseen chance, you should be some months, or even years, without hearing from me, Do not be uneasy. Whether I am near you or far away, I shall have but one thought to work for you, and consequently to serve France. End of section four.